You're listening to the Victory Church Podcast. Here at Victory, we are called to equip a caring, committed community of worshipers to reach their world for Jesus. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. My name is Jacob Curlin. I am the assistant pastor here at Victory, and I am honored that I get to share with you tonight. Um, my sermon title for tonight is um, This Time It's Personal, Every Time It's Personal, It's Personal. That's how it works, all right? I wanted to fit as many personals in it because if you can guess what my sermon is about tonight, it's personal, right, exactly. I'd like to uh, uh, talk a little bit about a gift that was given to my younger sister growing up, and that was my parents went out for her birthday and they bought her this cassette tape, all right? Um, I don't know if some of you might not know what a cassette tape is, it's this little thing that if it like it had tape in it and it was uh, rectangular and you'd have to stick a pencil in it to, you know, like if, if the tape came out. Anyways, my parents, they, came, they went out and they got this cassette tape from my sister. And what was special about this cassette tape is it wasn't something, you know, like a, some like popular music. It was actually a personalized album with 10 songs on it that had songs specifically with her name in it. Her name was Rachel. And she was enthralled when she got it, and we were all mortified because, of course, if any of you have children, you know that young children, if they get obsessed with something, they just play it over and over and over and over again. And this, uh, this album, and particularly one song, has haunted me. This is 30 years ago, okay? This, there's a song that still to this day haunts me, and that is The Girl in the Mirror. But it doesn't haunt me just because it's, it's creepy, but also because it's just awful, okay? It's just weird and awkward. And so the girl in the mirror would happen where my, sis, my sister would play the tape and she'd sit in front of a mirror and she'd comb her long blonde hair and sing to herself about herself. And, this is, and it would go something like this. Who's that girl? In the mirror, who's that girl? Who's that happy, smiling? Rachel. Who's that girl? It was like really badly overdubbed like that. So her name would like come in and and you'd hear her name and then it'd click and, and do that. And it was just frightening. And it would go on for hours and hours. And Rachel, she played that tape over and over and over again. And not because the songs were that incredible. It was not the Abbey Road of personalized cassette tapes. It just was not. It was because the songs were specific to Rachel. The songs were personal. The songs were meant for her. The second youngest kid in a family of 11 was seen. And that's kind of where we're going to go tonight. Personal is something that each and every one of us desires so much. I mean, look at it. It's a marketable thing. Personal is marketable. I mean, look at Starbucks. You go into Starbucks and they yell out your name, albeit it's the wrong name, but come on. 
Come on, they're just a little bit of a little itty bitty coffee shop in a big coffee shop world. So they're trying to make it. They're trying. But uh, Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut put personal pan pizzas on the map. Come on, right? I read 15 books to get this pizza. Book it, anybody? Come on. It's not by happenstance that we like things to be personal. It's just within us. We're created to be personal. And don't miss this. Jesus' relationship with us is personal. One of my favorite passages of the Bible, as many of you guys know, is, comes from uh, Psalm 116 and verses 1 and 2. And it says, I love the Lord because he hears my prayers. He answers them. He bends down to listen. I will praise as long as I have breath. God sees us. He knows us. And he loves us. To him, it is personal. And let's be honest. I think it's fair to say that we love personal when it suits and fits our needs, but not really outside of that, not really when it begins to inconvenience us. See, the topic of personal, when it's brought up, we immediately think of ourselves, right? Of course we do, but if we take something personal, it's, it's inward. But where I'd like to see us to go today is in a direction where I think we can begin to think outside ourselves. So wait, we're going to talk about personal relationship with Jesus, but take ourselves out. Yes, absolutely we are. But bear with me, because I believe if we learn collectively how to be personal in our walk with Jesus and the way Jesus intended for us, we will see an explosion of renewal and faith and more of God's glory in and around us. Amen? Amen. All right, this is what it says in Luke Chapter 19, starting with verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector in the region. And he had become very rich. He had tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. And, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Amen. Here we see Zacchaeus. He has lost his sense of identity, his sense of belonging, and his purpose. He's ostracized by his community. He's unwanted, unwelcome, unloved. And the most popular story, this is one of the most popular stories about one of the most unpopular people in the Bible. 
And there's so much in this passage. I look at each section and I think, wow, we could write a whole sermon series on just this passage alone, on just Zacchaeus alone. We can look at some of these key points. This, uh, a man becomes a child, verses two through four. A seeking man becomes found, verses five. A small man becomes big, verses seven through eight. A poor man becomes rich, verses nine through 10. The host becomes the guest, and Verses six, we could take time for each one of these and they're all great. And can we recognize that each one of these points all point to personal? There's something personal about it. Zacchaeus' story of personal redemption all stem from the likelihood that he probably had some identity issues. And I don't think that's a far stretch. I really don't, because if we're all honest with ourselves, really honest with ourselves, we can all say we have some kind of identity issue in some way, shape, or form, right? And here we have someone that has a lot of issues going on. Jesus helps us move beyond them into a Christ-like identity. Jesus sees us for who we are created to be, not who Others or ourselves perceive us to be and calls us to him so that we can be transformed into a purpose-driven identity. Let me unpack that. It makes me think to the Old Testament. It makes me think of in Genesis where we see Hagar and she's in the wilderness and she's crying out to the Lord and she uses a name for the Lord that we have not seen up until this point. And she calls out to him, she calls Adonai Elroy, the God who sees me. Adonai Elroy, the God, you are the God who sees me. Anyone here ever feel like no one sees them? Like really sees them or understands them or knows what they're going through? The Bible tells us that we have a God who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, a God who is right beside you waiting for you to see him. And in Genesis 16, 13, Hagar continues. She asks, have I truly seen the one who sees me. And this this implies that God sees us first. That's so good. Seeing the one who sees us, he sees beyond our facade to the very core of each one of us. Before the foundations of the earth were formed, God saw us, he knew us. He sees you, God sees you before you even see him. And Zacchaeus climbs this tree so he can see Jesus, but little did he know it was more so that Jesus could see him, so Jesus could call to him, so Jesus could fundamentally change his life, restore his identity. Jesus' story, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus' story and our story is all about Jesus. Think about that. Your story, your particular story, your particular situation, it's all about Jesus. What an honor. But when I begin to think about it in those terms, I'm too prideful and too broken to accept it. Well, what about me? 
See, the world tells us that we're unique and special, and you are, it's true, but you're uniquely special to give all the honor and glory to Jesus. We're not made to live independent, self-directed lives, living for our own moments of glory. No, we're created to live for him. He sees us, and in turn, we can see him. This is about Jesus. This is about his glory. And the element that we provide, the, 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 the component that we provide is embracing his glory to be seen by others and ultimately to be given back to him. The first four words of the Bible are the most, probably the most important words. And it says, in the beginning, God. And some of us maybe need to revisit it. <laughs> Because despite what you think, your name isn't there. These are four amazingly important words that change everything from the way you think about your identity, your meaning, and your purpose to the way that you approach even the smallest of human tasks. Everything that was created was made by God and for God. All the glories of the created world, big and small, were designed to point to his glory, and our response is to see it. If you have a tough time with that, you're gonna love what I have to say next. We're meant to seek Jesus beyond the religious dimensions of our lives. And what I mean is we're, we're, we're meant to seek Jesus outside of church. Paul puts it simply in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, when Paul talks about our call to live the life that we're meant to live, the life that we're created to live, the life we're called to live for the glory of God, he doesn't think of the big life-changing spiritual moments of life. No, he thinks of something as mundane and repetitive as eating and drinking. Even the most regular, seemingly unimportant tasks of my life must be shaped and directed by heartfelt desire for the glory of God to be manifested in and through me. I sang a song earlier, and I put myself out there because I'm kind of shy. I was a little bit vulnerable with all of you. So we're going to take a moment, and I'm going to have you guys, if you could... Sing along with me. Um, in Sunday school, I'm certain that you probably came along at some point in time, came, came across a song about Zacchaeus. And if you were in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about, all right? And I can't help but read this story and not hear this song. And so I thought, like, I can't do a sermon without singing a, the Zacchaeus song, all right? So if you know it, I'd love for you guys to sing it along. And like, the Bible says to bear one another's burden, so let's do that together. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he said, Zacchaeus, you climb down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. All right, give yourself a hand. Good job at home if you did this. Good job. Well, the reason I bring that up is not to have us just sing a silly song. Actually, it's funny because I taught my son when he was a wee little man. I taught him. He was a little toddler. I taught him this song. 
and he would sing it, but when he would get to the portion of Jesus' response of, I'm going to your house today, uh, you know, you climb down, he never learned the right words. And so he would get all up, he would purse his lips and his little sausage toddler finger would go up in the air and he would condemn Zacchaeus. I mean, he would admire, he was like, so it would go a little something like this. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he said, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree at this instant. You're in a lot of trouble. I'm going to count to three. And then you're in it. You're in for it. Time out for you, Zacchaeus. And I'm like, all right, what the heck? He, he was such a rule follower, and he just did not like the fact that Zacchaeus climbed in this tree. And so he would just, I could not teach him the right words. I wonder where he got that kind of like concept. Ugh. It's weird. Weird how your kids do that. But I think that speaks to the perception that some of us have of who Jesus is. Albeit it's the wrong perception, but nonetheless, I hear people all the time lament the fact that Jesus is waiting at the bottom of that tree, and he's got this hammer, and he's just waiting to smack us with that sin we've been carrying around. Oh, I can't wait to get out of that tree. You're in so much trouble, Zacchaeus, but that's not who we see Jesus to be. That's not who he is in this story or elsewhere in the Bible and I think we attribute this persona to Jesus because of stories maybe we don't fully understand in the Bible. Maybe it's our, 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 our issues of ways that we are brought up or, or authority issues. But can I just give one more thought? I think we project this imagery of a tyrannical God because it's how we perceive others and how we perceive ourselves. We set a scale you know, a comparison scale, we set the scale and we begin to weigh our sin versus others' sins. Am I wrong? In this case, sin does two significant things to us all. See, the first thing it does is it causes us to insert ourselves into the center of our worlds. And it makes life all about us. In our self-focus, we're too motivated by our wants, our needs, and our feelings. And because of this, we tend to be more aware of what we don't have rather than the many wonderful things that God has blessed us with. And what goes further is, is because we become so self-focused, we start to become scorekeepers, constantly comparing our lives to the lives of others. And that's a life of discontentment, envy, and pride. We start to think, oh, this person has so much. Oh, if only I had this much, all my problems would go away. Or we are on the other end of the scale and we say, oh, we just don't have enough. Oh, we can never match up. Both are rooted in pride. Both are rooted in selfishness. Both are rooted in wrong thinking. And this is where we see Zacchaeus to be prior to his encounter with Jesus. Luke tells us that he cheated people from their money. His selfishness, his identity crisis kept him, kept him in perpetual sin. And there's a second thing of equal significance that sin does to us. It causes us to look horizontally for what only can be found vertically. So we look to the world for life, for hope, for peace, for rest, for contentment, for identity, meaning and purpose and inner peace and motivation to continue. And the problem is that nothing in this world can ever give any of those things. 
Creation was never designed to satisfy our desires. Creation was made to point one gigantic arrow to the one who created us, the one who alone has the ability to satisfy your heart. Yet many of us will wake up in the morning and choose creation to be our savior rather than the creator. You want proof? So many of us say, I can't find time in the day for five minutes with Jesus. But we certainly can binge five hours of Netflix. Right? It only took Zacchaeus the length of a dinner's time spent with Jesus to realize, yeah, things in my life aren't so great. I have all this money. I have all this wealth. And I'm still miserable. But... It also took Zacchaeus the length of a dinner's time spent with Jesus to realize his need for repentance and more of Jesus. And unfortunately, the modern church, us, we stop right there at the realization and not the action. Still with me? This is all to say, don't stand stagnant in the middle of your garbage. Sorry, personal takes action. Have you ever seen that meme with the little cartoon dog and the whole room's on fire and it like zooms in on his face and the caption reads, this is fine, this is fine, right? That's one of my favorite memes. Church, that's us in the world. We're too busy singing spiritual songs about ourselves that make us feel good, listening to sermons that apply to other people's sins, not ours, no, no. <laughs> Because their sin is so much worse and zero change is happening in any one of our lives. When the reality is that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. All of us means all of us, FYI. That includes myself. That includes anyone watching. That includes all of us. Yet God, which is, ah, come on, the word of God is so good. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. And what does this mean? It means that being known by God means he knows it all. All the mess that is us, and he still went to the cross for me, for you. He's not waiting with a hammer. He's waiting with the gift of knowing him. And our response is not for self-worship or world worship, but to invite God to help us not return to that sinful life. Do we know who we are in him? Do we know who we are in Jesus? All of this comes from knowing God. Do you know him? Jesus saw Zacchaeus for who he was created to be. Zacchaeus only needed to accept the invitation of Jesus to have his life shaken for good. And Jesus said not one word about sin that we know of. It's time spent with him that drives us to change because we want to be more like him, because we want others to see him in us, because we want others to know the same redemption we know in him, because knowing God is knowing his grace and what it costs. Zacchaeus' story 
And our story shows us that we are seen and we are known by Jesus. But the bigger hope of all of this is knowing that we are loved by God. And all of this messiness of personal, of Jesus' personal love is putting aside his time, his agenda, his comfort to reach a stranger. Let me put this in perspective. Jesus' next stop after his dinner with Zacchaeus was Jerusalem. And that has great significance because Jesus knowingly was on his way to die for each and every one of us. And all the while, he's seeking out the lost to save them. And this personal love is about Jesus. It cannot happen without him. Jesus is the author of love. And so it would be foolish for us to think that we can accomplish true Christ-like love without him. We need to seek him more. We need to invite him more and ask him for more opportunities to love more. Tomorrow is not promised. So just like Jesus, we need to treat this love as urgent. It needs to go beyond shallow pleasantries to genuine love. See, we read in 1 John 4.10, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do we see a pattern here, by the way? Can we see that? Let's, let's just recap. I need to go back and recap this real quick because I need you to understand. He sees us so we can see him. He knows us so we can know him. He loves us so we can love him. See, that love is initiated by God for us. It's not us reluctantly saying, I, I guess I love you. I guess. Jesus did the most selfless thing anyone could do, fully knowing that as a culture, we will walk in selfishness daily and reject his love for idols. Excuse me, idols. What's more, if we do accept the love that Jesus gives, we're far too comfortable in our selfishness to recognize that we offer shallow kindness over love in most of our interactions. Ouch. I think sometimes as Christians, we mistake kindness or confuse kindness with love. We think that being kind is showing love when it's really not. We think that uh, kindness, yeah, well, kindness is a result of love, that's for sure, but it's, it's not love. Kindness can actually be shallow, and we use it to substitute for love, or even worse, we can use it to manipulate love for our own selfish gain. Love is messy. Love is personal. We are called to self-giving love for those around us. And it's exhausting sometimes, and it's rewarding. And love is how we can see God working in and through us. True Christ-like love. Without love like that, without love like Christ has given us, we are nothing. And understanding the love Jesus has, we have to see and know the urgency that's behind it. In particular, we see how Jesus sees us and knows us personally. But notice how Jesus didn't say, um, excuse me, we, we man, could you perhaps invite me over to your house? Um, no, Jesus calls him by name and invites himself over. The host becomes the guest because he loves us first. 
And there's something deeper in the text. Jesus uses the word must. There was an urgency behind the words. He was saying, R.C. Sprouse puts it this way, Jesus entered Jericho, looked in the sycamore tree, and saw the one whom the Father had given him from the foundation of the world, and he said, Zacchaeus, I know who you are. You are my sheep. You are my friend. Get down from that tree. I must come to your house because we have business together of the greatest urgency. But we only need to replace Zacchaeus, his name with our own, because he does the same for each and every one of us. And the following beautiful words are spoken from the mouth of our Savior. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. It's today. Here's a question to ponder. Has salvation come to your house? I'm not asking if Jesus has just visited. I'm asking if he's invited you to experience salvation in your house. I touched on this earlier. Does your salvation extend beyond the walls of Victory Church? Does your personal relationship with Jesus bleed into your home and to your everyday? When your coworkers see you, do they see the work of Jesus in and through you? Zacchaeus sees how to respond to a personal invitation of Jesus and answers with repentance and daily devotion. And this is where we see Jesus make this wonderful statement of hope. Salvation has come to this home. And when I think about salvation, I think about how personal it is to me. And I have the proclivity to keep it to myself, yet I know my salvation and your salvation and future salvation is meant for us. Yes, it is. It's meant for us but more so for the greater glory of God. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, not Zacchaeus alone. The assumption is that Zacchaeus' transformation will lead others to Christ. And moreover, Jesus in all his wisdom fully knew this. Jesus didn't have much time, but he knew that his interaction with this man would change a community. That's how amazing Jesus is. Zacchaeus' salvation brought life transformation and it had resounding effects on an entire city. Well, how so? Well, we can only speculate what happened afterwards, right? But if Zacchaeus actually followed through with his promises, at the least, people would see someone they counted on as a last cause, reformed, and personal financial blessings poured out to each one of them each one of them, but at its best, Zacchaeus's life would become a greater testimony to the love of Jesus living in and through his life. And it's a life that cannot help but point to the God who sees, who knows, and loves us so dearly. And we become living vessels ready for the Lord to use for every good work. What greater testimony is that? Personal is not me, it's not you, it's Jesus, and it's always been Jesus. And our response to his goodness and mercy and love, personal is Jesus. And I started off my sermon today saying you'll never be able to live out this personal like you were created to be. And I want to close by admitting that there's a little bit more to that statement. You'll never be able to live out that life without a personal relationship with Jesus. See, there's nothing less natural for us, than to, for, for us than to live for the glory of someone else. This admission is, is not an admission of, of, of doubt or despair. This is an admission of hope 
because God knew that in your sin, you'd never be able to live this way. So he sent his son to live the life you couldn't, to die on your behalf, to raise again, conquering sin and death. He did this so that you wouldn't only be forgiven for your allegiance to your own glory, but have every grace you need to live for his. When we begin to admit our need for help, we connect ourselves to the rescuer and the rescue he's already provided with his son. Reach out for hope by reaching out for the rescuer again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that we can take this and understand that we are seen by you, God. We are known by you, God. And we are loved by you, God. And I just pray right now that if there's anyone in this room today that doesn't think that they're loved or doesn't know that they're loved by God, God, that you will touch them right where they're at today, God. And if someone needs to make that decision today to follow you, God, help them just to make it. If you want to make that decision today, all you have to do is say, God, I accept you into my heart. I believe you're my savior. And God will come there. God will be there with you. So God, we thank you so much for decisions that are made today. God, we thank you for recommitments that are made today. God, we thank you for commitments that we're making today to be known and seen and loved by you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Church Podcast. If this message inspired you, feel free to share it with your friends, family, and social media. And make sure to subscribe to hear future messages from Victory Church. If you'd like to support the mission of Victory, please visit getvictory.net slash give. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.